0: that's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See
2: website for details. Hey, everybody, and welcome to This Anthro Life. Excited to be here with you. I'm your host, Adam Gamwell. Today, we've got a very special guest and contributor, the social media intern for This Anthro Life for the past six months, Sarah Schmider. Sarah, how are you doing today?
1: Great. How are you?
2: Doing pretty well, thanks.
1: I have a weird question for you, Adam. Yeah. Are you a friend of a cemetery?
2: Am I a friend of a cemetery? You know, I'd like to think that I would be, but I, I don't know that I am.
1: Well, I'm a friend of a cemetery. So I grew up in a suburb outside of Richmond, Virginia. And when I was in high school, my family and I got involved in cemetery restoration at East End Cemetery with the Friends of East End, a cemetery friend group. And a part of this friend group is Dr. Ryan Smith, a professor of history and material culture at, at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he recently published a book entitled Death and Rebirth in a Southern City, Richmond's Historic Cemeteries. And after reading his book, I got in contact with him because you know, we're all friends of the cemetery. And I sat down with him for this interview where we're going to talk about what it means to be a friend of a cemetery, segregation and historic Richmond cemeteries, and how sacred spaces are being protected and reclaimed.
2: Very cool. I'm super excited for this conversation. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm so excited that you brought it to the TAL audience. I know we're going to love it. Uh, and so I guess, you know, sit back, relax, and enjoy. And, you know, hope when we come out, we're all going to be friends with the cemeteries.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hope everyone enjoys. My first question is, what drew you to wanting to research, like, the history of cemeteries in Richmond?
3: So that's a great question, and a lot of folks seem to ask that because I suppose the assumption there is that cemeteries are not for everybody, right, that they attract certain people, but other people prefer to spend as little time in and around cemeteries as possible. I think it speaks to our overall society's approach to death, right? It's not always a comfortable topic for people, and so cemeteries get treated differently and certainly are seen as different types of spaces. I always thought cemeteries were interesting growing up. I got really fascinated with church architecture and symbolism and religious art overall, And so cemeteries seemed like a, a good place to find examples of religious art or symbolism and different types of sources for history. But this particular project, how I got interested in Central Virginia's cemeteries and thought about teaching classes or writing even a book about it, started off through teaching. I had a friend at the University of Richmond, a colleague who suggested this very class, that we teach a class on Richmond's historic cemeteries. And at first I thought that was pretty narrow. It seemed like we should be looking broader or we should be looking at more than just cemeteries, but I gave it a try. And what I discovered was what we both discovered is that it opened up really exciting kind of worlds around us that we hadn't thought to engage with in that same way before. When you think about the history of slavery in the region, you think about certain types of sites, but When you look at it through the lens of the burial grounds, it makes, for us, new connections and new ways to engage with that topic. And we found it was the same with the Civil War or with gender or with religious faith and immigration and industrialization. So what I thought at first was a pretty narrow topic struck me as a topic that was able to speak to a lot of really big and broad issues. And the last thing I suppose I'd say about how I got interested in it was as we were leading the students around to the different cemeteries and historic burial sites, it, it struck me that there was a lot going on regarding those sites. We would expect those sites to be pretty quiet or to be pretty stable. But over the last 10 or 20 years, uh, hopefully as the book shows a lot has changed on the landscape from sites that had been totally ignored or totally destroyed or totally built over to be recovered or overgrown or have been, as, as you well know, cleared in brand new ways. The state started providing funding for graves that it had hadn't before and recognizing graves that had been disregarded before. So the whole landscape around us, and as I was writing the project, was changing. And so I was hoping to capture some of that and it certainly fueled my my desire to to get the project going and to get the book out to to join that conversation.
1: Yeah I think it's really interesting how you touched on the changing scenery of cemeteries within the last decade over 10-15 years Mm -hmm. because I think that really is evident in the book because like you start with the original colonialist settlers and like their graves and then you end up with like this new bringing new life to like evergreen and east end and as you know we're both have ties to working with the friends of east end so when writing the book besides highlighting these changes over time what did you really want people to leave the book with a greater sense of
3: my thinking along those lines got kicked off A few years ago, when Richmond was going to observe or commemorate the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. So here we had 150 years since 1861 and 1865. That had been obviously a huge impossible to overstate the effect that the Civil War had on the nation and on the on the region. And Richmond in the past had talked about the Civil War typically in one way, and that way is we're familiar with on Monument Avenue, you know, celebrating the lost cause or describing it as not having much to do with Black history or African-American involvement. But during the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary, there was a bunch of museum professionals and academics that started to reframe the Civil War by tying together the story of emancipation with the story of the war itself. And that proved to be, for me, a really exciting lens that that showed the larger kind of landscape in in a new way. Not just, of course, burial grounds for my project, but looking at the the memorials and the monuments and the museums and, and how that spoke to national history overall. And so that showed me a new approach, a more holistic approach to the past. And so what I would want readers or those that engage with my project to take away is something similar to recasting a story that had been presented one way and to therefore make those new connections with the cemeteries to the public monuments or the cemeteries to what we display in the state capitol or in the United States capitol to look at historic preservation overall, not just of cemeteries, uh, not just of city properties, but to look at national trends. And the case I tried to make for the book is that we see uh, this is a, a case study that seems to have some relevance and some connection to all those other questions about what do you do with plantation sites, or the memorial landscape in public streets, or at the state or the national capital. And so I tried to pull together some of those threads, again, to use the the cemeteries as a case study for all of that.
1: Interesting. I definitely see how the cemeteries are sort of providing a different narrative, especially to the whole, like, lost cause, or as I was sadly taught in school. Civil War was not about slavery, it was about states' rights and the economy, but the state's rights was to own slaves and the economy was built on slavery. But you love the faulty for, education.
3: Well, it's, it's not just in the education right, and in schools. Here in Richmond, we've got, as we know, the, the slave trading district was located in Chaco Valley or what we call Chaco Bottom today. And there was a National Register for Historic Places a nomination that was listing the tobacco district in Chaco Valley and Chaco Bottom on the National Register of Historic Places. And it made no mention of slavery at all, (laughs) which is staggering, right? That how do you write about Richmond's tobacco industry in Chaco Bottom without talking about either the role of slave labor in that industry or the presence of those slave traders that were right next to all those historic structures that it was, that that National Register nomination was was writing about. And something else that really struck me, against that it's not just in the schools, but if you look even today at the numbers of National Register listings for historic sites that have something directly to engage with African-American history, it's only about 3% of the overall listings on the National Register. So it's that that... Southern interpretation of the Civil War and what America was all about was shared, frankly, after the first couple of decades after the war by the northern, the white northern populace as well that helped, again, create definitions of who was American, who belonged in that national story and, and who didn't. And so I think if you were to go to school in New Hampshire or Vermont, you would get a very different from the Virginian interpretation of this being just about states' rights or whatnot. But even if it was more union-friendly, it still would, I think, exclude the role, the central role that African-Americans and the institution of slavery played in, in all of American history.
1: Yeah, that is white supremacist education of the whitewashing of history
3: absolutely the
1: classic american story of putting our skeletons in the closet and saying there's no closet but you brought up Shaco hill and Shaco hill cemetery or i believe it was the friends of Shaco hill was kind of the first friends of a cemetery organization that was brought up in the book and later in the discussion about east end and evergreen and woodland they're more Friends of groups. Can you elaborate on like the function of those?
3: Sure. Well, the Friends of Shaco Hill Cemetery are a really interesting example. It's, to my knowledge, they're the first local volunteer friends group that was affiliated with a local cemetery. And interestingly, the idea for that locally here seemed to come out of the leadership at Hollywood Cemetery. The director there is a man named David Gilliam, and he was serving on a Richmond Historic Cemeteries committee that the city council had put together in the early 2000s to try to figure out how to better care for the city's cemeteries. And that committee didn't last very long, but it was clear that something needed to be done. And Gilliam at Hollywood Cemetery had his finger on the pulse of what other major cemeteries around the country were doing to try to preserve their sites or to raise awareness for their sites and to raise funds. And so he proposed that the cemeteries try to sponsor or gather individual volunteer groups for each of the sites that would help bring attention to them. And so the first group that seemed to pick up that challenge or see the need for that was the group that coalesced around Shaco Hill Cemetery. And so it's Weird for me that Hollywood that we all think of as being so literally well endowed with, you know, millions and millions of dollars and a good cash flow and generally a good landscape there, that they were thinking about volunteer groups and fringe groups and they offered that. And we also think it's weird that Shaco Hill Cemetery might host one of these friends groups because it was city owned. And there was a lot of really notable elite white residents that were buried there, perhaps most notably as John Marshall. Who's was the chief justice of the Supreme Court in the early years of the court that is one of the main founders of the Supreme Court's position in our life today. But it had gone downhill a little bit. It was no longer really an active cemetery. And so it was looking a little rough around the edges. And so in the early 2000s, there was a, a group of folks that wanted to see that site in better condition. So they formed this volunteer group. And this idea of a friends group had been executed at other cemeteries around the country. So with this idea implemented here, they raised money, they installed new markers, they kept pressure on the city to mow the grounds and to clear the fallen trees and things like that. And they started to host events on site such as the Poe homecoming theatrical productions that I talk about in the book, but also just tours dedicated to maybe the Irish around St. Patrick's Day or a tour of women's graves or a tour of iron, you know, artwork in the cemeteries. And they seem to be really successful. I think today, when you go and visit Shaco Hill Cemetery, it looks much, much different than those reports from 20 or 30 years ago to say the condition of the site was. And I think a lot of that credit goes to this friends group being able to put some pressure on the city or bring their own resources to the table. I think if we ask the friends themselves of Shaco Hill Cemetery, they don't feel like they've gotten the support of the community or of the city that they wanted. They always want to do more and to do better. But my hat's off to them for what they have been able to accomplish. And so I think that idea spread, as we saw with East End Cemetery. They got a Friends of East End Cemetery that was founded in 2013, and there was also a group for Evergreen Cemetery, a volunteer group that got rolling the Evergreen Restoration Foundation under Marvin Harris. And it it seems like a, a really useful model, no matter whether the cemetery is privately owned or publicly owned, to have a core group of people that are looking out for it, that are calling public attention to it and thinking creatively about how to move the site forward. So if you look at the Evergreen Restoration Foundation, their work has been head and shoulders above even those other city-owned cemeteries. They've been basically the only ones on site there for many, many years. And so they've served as de facto caretakers for the entire site and they've done phenomenal things. And so I think what the Friends of East End Cemetery has done is showed us what's possible for these volunteer groups to accomplish, which is really inspiring.
1: Also, well, what's possible when they aren't being kept off of the site?
3: Well, that's the tragedy here. And I'm really hoping that our leaders and our residents and our public are paying attention to what's going on because... To me, the Friends of East End Cemetery was one of the most effective volunteer sites, frankly, in in the nation at recovering almost entirely overgrown, vandalized, strewn with debris and and trash and dumping. And, And they totally transformed that site without really any funding at all. And so to have a group like that displaced for no good reason that I can understand is is mystifying. And so we're doing everything we can to lobby political leaders to allow the friends to return. But I think unless something changes, I'm not optimistic in the near term, which again, I just, I'm a historian. I study the past, typically not embroiled in public policy and, and politics of today, but I'm finding that if you care about the preservation of these places, And if you care about the people whose lives are involved in the community that these places represent, then we have to take my historian hat off and and start to ask those questions and start to do what I can to try to look out for the future of these sites and provide some oversight to how the state or the city treats and privileges certain owners over others.
1: Yeah, I visited East End yesterday or the other day, depending on when people listen to this. And just the immense difference between how it was in like 2017 when Friends of East End were consistently coming out like every Saturday to clean and in the summers fight back basically the overgrowth that happens like every single spring and summer versus currently where at this point it's sort of like, did anyone ever work on this? Was there ever a group that worked on this? And it's quite depressing, especially since I feel like East End, and correct me if I'm wrong, is in an interesting situation compared to Evergreen or Woodland, where they don't have a sort of like quote unquote famous resident. Like Evergreen has Maggie Walker, and then Woodland has Arthur Ash, and East End is just sort of on the border of Henrico and Richmond right as you're going into Evergreen. So it's a precarious situation, layout-wise. You're
3: right. It, It had gotten lost in the shuffle, I think, with Maggie Walker's grave and the earlier efforts to bring about the restoration of Evergreen Cemetery. Folks would drive through that main entranceway past East End Cemetery and hardly realize that it was a cemetery at all, number one, or if they could realize that that was a cemetery, not realizing that it was separate From evergreen the two sites are right next to one another and so it's there's not a good boundary between the two and so you're right that those celebrity burials of arthur Ashe and maggie walker might seem to overshadow or or to cast the identities of those respective cemeteries in a way that east end wasn't really able to i'm sure that the community that's engaged with east end or the friends would point out that rosa dixon bowser who's buried at east end cemetery is is quite a notable person in her own right. Here's, you know, one of the first public school teachers of, you know, African descent in in the city of Richmond, who achieved a ton during her life, you know, comparable to what Maggie Walker was was working on. Or William Custolo, who was one of the wealthiest African Americans in Richmond at the turn of the century and operated a really prestigious hotel and and public house on, on Broad Street, was was quite a notable resident. And there's a ton of other veterans buried at East End as as well that we should be paying attention to. But I'll grant you they don't have the name recognition that Maggie Walker has, or that certainly that Arthur Ashe has or the kind of name recognition that we associate with Hollywood Cemetery. And so that's been a challenge for it. But for me, back to the volunteers, what East End Cemetery did have for a time there in the 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 or so, was a really exciting core of of volunteers. Brian Palmer, Aaron Holloway Palmer, John Shuck. They were active on the national stage. John Shuck received a... National Trust Preservation Award. Brian and Aaron were publishing in the New York Times and about their, their book, work.
1: Um, the, the
3: Afterlife of Jim Crow. Uh, yeah. You know, featured that with some fantastic photographs. They had uh, museum exhibits that they were able to to launch. So they they really got the word out in an exciting way. So for me, that part of the attraction of taking students to East End was just seeing the creativity. And the leadership that Justin Curtis or Melissa Pocock or Mark Schmieder or the other volunteers were providing for that site. And so the living and the descendant families that were returning or continuing to engage there, those kinds of stories for me we as compelling as those inspiring stories that we associate with Maggie Walker or with Arthur Ashe
1: too. One thing I do want to bring up is that you mentioned the name recognition of Hollywood Cemetery. And the one part in the chapter on like post-emancipation reconstruction that was interesting is the quote, evergreen was supposed to be to black people what Hollywood was to white people. And I feel like that's a very interesting comparison, in especially I guess in 2021, looking at like evergreen. It's not like, not that it has to be a tourist attraction, But it's not like a lot of people say, I'm going to Richmond to go to Evergreen Cemetery. And in the same light, it also isn't necessarily getting the same type of, I mean, I'm assuming it's not getting the same type of funding because just if you're looking at Hollywood versus Evergreen, there are some like stark differences. Not that they have Mm -hmm. to be the same at all. Not that they have to be the same at all. But just thinking of that quote, I thought it was interesting.
3: Those comparisons have always been made, it seems like, between Hollywood Cemetery, which everyone can acknowledge has a super high profile, has a beautiful landscape, has notable residents, has has a lot of funding. And then if African-Americans had been blocked from burial there or did not want to be buried there, then what was the equivalent among the African-American community? We know that the Black community here in Richmond was always about half of the population of the city o- over the centuries uh, of the city's primary history. And so when I first heard those comparisons that the, the founders of Evergreen Cemetery wanted it to be the equivalent of Hollywood Cemetery or were actually drawing a direct comparison or connection to Hollywood, I was a little skeptical. It sounded a little bit too, too modern to my ears. And so I was looking at the Library of Virginia at a, at a court case. For the early years of the group that founded East End Cemetery. And they were looking at another site at the time, but they had actually used that phrase in their court filings and their petitions to the court that they should be allowed to operate because they wanted, there was those magic words that they wanted it to be for the Black community what the Hollywood Cemetery was for the white community. And so that was you know from the beginnings of those sites that they had that comparison in mind so when you compare it down to today how do those as you say what are the prospects for evergreen cemetery both in terms of funding and in how that site could look and who it could attract for for visitors could it attract people from outside of Richmond just to come and see it the same way that Hollywood does for outside visitors. My guess is that, yes, it's just so large. It's, you know, 60 acres is evergreen plus the 16 more for East end. So that's 76 total acres of really historic African-American graves. I don't know of a black cemetery of, of equivalent size, unless you go to a place like Atlanta, Georgia, you know, or, or perhaps, Baltimore, Maryland. So it's really notable in terms of its scope and its size, and that might serve to attract some visitors for that reason alone. But we would acknowledge that its funding is just never going to be where Hollywood's is at. Hollywood is approaching, as far as I understand, $60 million in its endowments to provide for funding for the cemetery once burials can no longer take place there, once they run out of room or people stop choosing to be buried there, they want to make sure that it will be cared for in perpetuity. And the master plan that the Enrichment Foundation has just put forward for Evergreen Cemetery alone called for about a $19 million, maybe $18 million plan to try to build out a visitor center and to care for the roadways and to care for the, the, the trees and the vegetation there and perhaps care for some of the monuments and I think that sounds really ambitious to a lot of us of, you know, where are they going to come up with 18 or $19 million for that? And even if they did, would that be enough to really take care of that cemetery in the way that we think it should? And and should $3 million of that go to a visitor center versus, you know, just frankly caring for the, the graves themselves? And so I think we, all, Michael Paul Williams, who is a columnist at the Richmond Times Dispatch, he told me once in a conversation that he didn't think, that Evergreen could ever catch up with Hollywood. That kind of expectation of parity or comparison was always going to be unfair because of the head start and because of the way that white supremacy is baked into our, the priorities of our institutions, that it would always be playing catch up to that. And we even just wonder if we had unlimited funds and if we did have the public will to bring a site like that back to the level that we'd want it to, would we want it to look like Hollywood Cemetery? Would we even want it to appear as it did in Maggie Walker's time. It's possible, but my guess is that we would lose something about engaging with that site if it didn't have some of the tree growth. You know, I think we could all agree that we don't want overgrowth on top of graves, but I just don't know that a, a purely pristine, basically treeless plain is, is the goal either there. So it's a really complicated question that brings in you know, what's the purpose and the goals of historic preservation and, and what, should, what should the vision for that site be?
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Especially when you're thinking about sites of East of Evergreen, where part of their history is the fact that they were overgrown and abandoned. And while that's extremely depressing because those are sacred spaces, you don't want to just bulldoze all of the trees that give it that character mm-hmm. and just pretend like, oh, ignore that we ever didn't care about these sites because it's a fact, like they were abandoned and that also has to be recognized.
3: And part of the dilemma for me that you just outlined is it makes me think about Brian Palmer's photographs. He, in in the museum exhibit, in their book, in the New York Times pieces that they've done, his photographs are absolutely gorgeous, right? Even as they can be heartbreaking, the, the vines, the trees, the light through the trees really create a sense of place, a sense of inspiration or motivation. And so it's probably not the way that Brian Palmer wants that site to look, but I think even he would acknowledge that what he's capturing in those photographs has a certain beauty or meaning to the condition that it's in. So it's a balance between keeping that sense of place and that sense of history of what that site has experienced with still providing a a dignified place that uh, invites visitors.
1: And honoring the residents that are buried there Mm -hmm. and their family that do travel. I think there was one family that traveled from like California to visit a relative's grave.
3: I've heard of that. I've heard of folks traveling from New York or Pennsylvania, throughout Virginia. California does ring a bell, too. So uh, people are very engaged with where their ancestors are buried. That's one other thing I learned in, in this project is it made me think <laughs> that in my own family, I had been somehow falling down on the job because I'm not sure I've traveled across the country to see the gravesite of one of my relatives. And that clearly is on the minds of a lot of, of American families of, of all backgrounds, that they do care about where their fam- Family is from, and they do care about re-engaging with those roots. And I think, especially for Black families too, because so much of the genealogy associated with African Americans is is problematic because of the institution of slavery. You know, Black families can't trace their family history in the same way that that white families can, and so that means that those connections that do survive, or those connections that can be made, are that much more precious for a group of people who don't have access to the typical historical records.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we have talked a lot about Easton and Evergreen, but what I think is interesting about those two sites personally Mm -hmm. is a Confederate cemetery that's down the way, um, Oakwood, and just the juxtaposition of two Black cemeteries right by the Confederate oppressors cemetery. So what was more interesting or what did you think was important about like research when looking at Oakwood because that was
3: part of this book? So what you're talking about is the city-owned Oakwood Cemetery, which is literally right next door to Evergreen Cemetery and East End Cemetery. And that Confederate section of Oakwood Cemetery, of course, gets rolling during the war itself early on, 1861, 1862, the city set aside basically as many acres in Oakwood as would be needed for the burial of Confederate troops. And so it grew to about 16, 17, 18,000 Confederate soldier burials there throughout the war, which is an incredible number. And most of them are, are privates. But after the war, of course, the Memorial Association associated with Oakwood Cemetery, led by the Ladies Memorial Associations, raised a bunch of money and started to hold these Memorial Day remembrances there each spring to bring attention and activity to help celebrate the memory of those Confederate soldiers. And so the condition of that site continued to be great, basically, all the way down to the mid to late 20th century. And when you go by today, it's still a pristine field with really well manicured lawns and There's a flagpole, and there's the monument, the obelisk is still there, and there's informative signage, and my guess is that a lot of people travel from out of town to see a site like that. What's ironic or disappointing about that is not only is that section, as you noted, the Confederate section, not very far away from these distressed Evergreen and East End cemeteries, but in between those two literally are African-American sections of Oakwood, so that there was black burials Near those Confederate burials at the same time during those war years, that is where uh, a lot of the Black community on the east end of Richmond was, was buried. There were Black burials in Oakwood Cemetery even before there were white burials, before the Civil War. And the history of a lot of those burials we think about in Richmond as being related to that grave robbing practice for anatomical specimens. That's where Chris Baker, who was a notorious staff member, uh, uh, janitor essentially at Medical College of Virginia, who was in charge of procuring anatomical specimens for cadavers for the students to dissect and learn from. The doctors in charge of that would send Chris Baker out to Oakwood Cemetery to prey upon those African-American graves there. And so he was actually caught by the police 1880s, but if you or I were to go and look for those same grave sites today, we wouldn't recognize them. We wouldn't see them. There's Stony Run Parkway was a road that was put in between Oakwood and Evergreen that went over the top of some of those grave sites, and then some of the rest of those grave sites around Stony Run Creek are just unmarked today, even unacknowledged, I think, by the city. So it's it's doubly ironic and heartbreaking that not only do you have those. Notable but distressed historic cemeteries like Evergreen within a stone's throw of the Confederate graves. But there's plenty of other African-American graves on city land that are still unacknowledged that are even closer to those Confederate graves. So I suppose the final full circle of all of this is that after 1968, the city desegregated its cemeteries, which meant that Black families could purchase plots in the previously white sections of Oakwood, which had kept expanding over the years. So nowadays, I think there's a, a large number of Black families that bury their loved ones in section, the newer sections of Oakwood Cemetery. So you see this site's history twist and turn throughout the, the decades and change over time, which goes back to our earlier point about how these sites are not static or they're not quiet. They don't stay the same. They, they keep changing. And so we could hope that some of those historic Black burials along the creek that are not acknowledged today might you know, maybe there's some signage in, in the future there that we could call attention to those graves or maybe clear some of the overgrowth there and literally connect those dots between the Confederate graves and those historic Black graves.
1: Yeah, I feel like that gives a interesting view on how cemeteries are, because as you said, that they are static, despite all of their residents being... <laughs> Dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's They're pretty quiet. Their history has a lot to say, but their current state is very quiet. But yeah, the evolution of Oakwood, because I'll be honest, I immediately associate it with the well-maintained Confederate mm-hmm. cemetery down the road, ironically, near East End, which is a not-so-well-maintained at least as it was in when I first went there and also yesterday, a black cemetery. And the fact that it actually is more of this interesting cycle. There, there were black people being buried there and then there weren't. And then desegregation of cemeteries happened and now there are again. And it's a interesting, I guess, balancing
3: act. Yeah. Yeah. We want to put all these things in a box. And so have our, you know, uncomplicated Confederate cemetery and then an uncomplicated African-American cemetery. But as we see that history is rarely that cut and dry, there, there's a lot of changes and a lot of things that challenge our assumptions, which is part of the beauty of studying history, right? Which is really rewarding in the same way. There's a author, a historian, Philip Arias, who wrote a lot about the presence of death or what death means throughout Western history. And he has a really great quote, I think that maybe I used in the book, which is society is composed of the dead and the living. And so when you talk about Oakwood Cemetery in that way, we see how both the Confederate dead, but also the African-American dead and, and others, how they still play a role in our society today, how they're valued by different Elements of our society, how they reemerge at certain times to uh, speak to us, how we can tell the history of MCV or, or, or VCU in, in this way and, and call attention to those sites and those connections and other times that those things are effaced and hidden. And so the, the role of the dead, as you say, even though they're quiet, they're still, in an odd way, still active members of our society. And so I think Arias' work helps, helps us put that in context in a larger sense.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of shifting away from the strictly like, oh, uh, black cemeteries and then like white cemeteries. The Hebrew cemeteries that you brought up in the book. I thought that was a very interesting section, especially since the Hebrew cemetery downtown. I'm sorry, the name is escaping me right now.
3: The Franklin Street Burying Grounds? Yes. Or... Wait. So the first it's one. It's the one
1: that's locked and you can't get into it.
3: Uh, that's Franklin Street Burying yes, Ground.
1: Yes, Franklin Street Burying Ground.
3: Uh, yeah, the Franklin Street Burying Ground was the first designated Jewish cemetery in Virginia created by the Jewish community here in Richmond affiliated with Beth shalom I believe the sixth congregation of Jews in the early United States so this was a really important pioneer really you know forerunner to the Jewish landscape in America and certainly in the state of Virginia but it was small and it was right downtown and it was down the hill from the, the churchyard where most of the other white residents were buried around the church and so it filled up pretty quickly and uh, most of the attention among that new Jewish congregation shifted over to what we now call Hebrew Cemetery today uh, around Shaco Hill. And that left that earlier site in a little bit of limbo, right? It held squatters on it for a little while. And it shows us how, again, these sites continue to evolve and change over time. When I was started to write that chapter on Jewish cemeteries in the region, I didn't expect to find as complex a story as I did. It seemed like there was shifting currents and allegiances within the Jewish community that, that made for what I thought was a really rich relationship between the, the mainstream culture, the mainstream kind of Christian culture, and subgroups within the Jewish residents so that there were different congregations, even struggling for control within Hebrew Cemetery. You had the older Beth Shalom congregation that would struggle with the newer German Beth Ahaba congregation for the right to bury in that Hebrew cemetery. And then by the end of the 1800s, you had the newest wave of Jewish immigrants coming in from from Russia or Eastern Europe that didn't want anything to do with the more assimilated German Jews in town. And so they founded their own congregations like Sir Moses Montefiore out on the... The east end of town and, and the Sir Moses Montefiore Cemetery. And so it created for me a, a really useful way to think about what line that immigrants, or in this case, a religious minority too, has to walk in a pretty charged atmosphere, right, of, of Richmond, where it's clear the benefits that will go to groups that can be considered white and supporting the city's racial order versus those that are not aligning with that order. And so the, the Jews were able to, to walk that line and, and maintain practices that were important to the community while also assimilating to the, the culture that was here in terms of white supremacy and support for segregation and, and that kind of thing. So back to the Franklin Street burying ground. Uh, a site that had fallen off the radar a little bit or had been left behind, so to speak, by those earliest Jewish residents, becomes newly important in the early years of the 1900s, when a lot of the new-ish, newest Jewish arrivals were not as assimilating as well as the earlier groups were. And that, I think, raised some concern among the older Jewish residents. And so the oldest burying ground provided groups like Haba a way to signal that they had been in Richmond for a very long time been in Virginia for a really long time and that their roots were deep here and that they were deserving of this kind of accolades that places like St. John's Churchyard was was getting and so you, it's interesting to read the speeches that were read at the dedication rededication of that burying ground and they all talk about the stress that the Jewish community was under with this newest immigration and some of the challenges they were facing among the larger culture. And then one of my favorite student projects that helped me think about all of these things was when I had a student write a history of that Franklin Street Burying Ground. And she actually went down and interviewed the developer in the early 2000s who was putting up that new apartment complex or that new condominium complex around that burial ground. And so if you go there and visit it today, as you noted, the the gate is locked and you can't really get into that ground, but you can't see into it, but from only the the entrance, because on all three of the other sides, it's enclosed by this three or four story condominium complex. And so it serves now as a sort of courtyard, an odd green space courtyard in the middle of that three-sided construction. And my student was somewhat offended by what she saw there. She thought that that somehow desecrated those grounds or didn't properly acknowledge the perhaps the presence of the bodies that were there. But the developer and some of the folks we talked to at Bethahaba, again, challenged us and said that, no, that they thought that the people who lived there knew that it was an important historic site and that history and modern life could coexist in this way. And the folks we talked to at Bethahaba thought that it kept potential vandals out of the yard and provided a little bit more security for the yard. So that, that was a really surprising site. And I think not many visitors to Richmond are aware of it. You could wander around even Chaco Bottom today, and and not bump into it unless you're really looking for it but it's it's a really important site that again has gone through a lot of these changes
1: yeah yeah i i also didn't really think about how that three-sided condominium does really provide protection especially when you're thinking about like anti-semitic sentiments and the current rise of them and Mm -hmm. how having people who are actually just looking right at the cemetery that does add an extra layer of protection
3: yeah I mean, you you note the current environment that we're in, we we have seen, you know, much more visible anti-Semitism recently, perhaps, than than we would expect to see. And even over the summer, there was some desecration of some gravestones at Sir Moses Montefiore Cemetery with uh, white supremacist symbolism. And so, I guess, any other level of protection that we could find, even if it means building right up to the very edges of a cemetery... Might be appealing to residents like that who are having to fight against those kinds of expressions on a regular basis.
1: True, true. But mm-hmm. even the whole the way cemeteries get protected, like in this book, is interesting. Is as we are kind of segueing from the Hebrew cemeteries, like I guess going back to the Eastern Evergreen, there was talk about how there used to be like a groundskeeper who was there specifically to make sure that the grave sites weren't robbed, because mm-hmm. in Oakwood that was an issue, or that they mm-hmm. weren't desecrated. And then sort of circling now to there have been headstones stolen from East End and the mausoleum you talked about in Evergreen that was consistently desecrated.
3: Yeah, the cemeteries attract a lot of what you could say is hooliganism, right? They attract a lot of vandalism. They attract a lot of underground behavior and difficult things. There's disgusting things that we found in a lot of these cemeteries, like the stuff that you would never imagine would take place in a cemetery and should never take place in a cemetery. But even the, the most prestigious cemeteries have struggled with this. During the war, the Civil War, Shaco Hill Cemetery was complaining about women coming in and stealing flowers off of graves and then selling them in the marketplace, which to us sounds like something that white Richmonders just could not abide. And I know that Hollywood Cemetery has also struggled with with vandalism. A lot of my VCU students tell me stories about climbing over the the walls or the gates and going in there in the middle of the night and goofing around. And monuments in Hollywood Cemetery have been either stolen or attempt to be stolen. There's a a couple mausoleums there that have been broken into and kind of weird ceremonies held in front of those mausoleums. So having said that, we do acknowledge that the Jewish and the African-American cemeteries here have faced a special level of threat. I think it's fair to say that the sustained action that was taken against Evergreen and East End Cemetery. There, there's nothing like it to compare with the white cemeteries. The news stories that talk about 80 cars, you know, ramming through a barricade to get into Evergreen Cemetery at night and have a, a party or some kind of initiation right. There's nothing like that that you could compare with Hollywood or anything. And just the sheer amount of debris. We look back at the Friends of East End. I think they pulled out over a thousand T- oh, I remember from, that. I remember that. And, and it wasn't just all stacked in the front. There's over a thousand tires throughout those grounds. That takes generations of desecration and destruction to mount that kind of debris in a cemetery and purposeful debris. And so there's nothing that clearly there's something about the identity of those African-American cemeteries that was attracting that dumping and, and that destruction.
1: Yeah, the sheer level of disrespect. You mentioned the
3: Braxton Mausoleum in Evergreen, too, which is, if anybody doubts kind of what white supremacy meant and what racism was capable of in in the city, you know, that's as good of an example, I think, as we could find. Taking bodies out and decapitating them and setting them on fire and taking pictures and that kind of thing is just unspeakable. And it could only be allowed if a population was dehumanized in the way that African Americans have struggled against since the earliest days of the city.
1: Yep. Very sad, but
3: very true. And still ongoing. Ah, Uh, There are big signs out front that, Evergreen and Easton cemeteries are, nobody's going to confuse those sites now the way they might have generations past after the overgrowth and and things like that. But they still, as you know, they still find newly dumped truckloads of trash on the grave sites alongside the road and the security cameras catch all kinds of awful behavior taking place within the cemeteries. So it's not something that's in our past. It's something that we all need to, to work against today.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Is there anything else about your book or your research that you want to make sure is covered in this? Like anything that you really want to be like, this is like the biggest, maybe not the overall, but like, I really need this to be mentioned.
3: suppose one thing I could think of was when I was putting this book together, and even when I was teaching this class, I would ask myself, you know, is this a Richmond story? Or would this story appeal or interest folks from outside of our region. And and that's a challenge for any historical project unless you're writing history of the world. But we have to think about who our audience is. And I certainly wanted to speak to a local audience and to policymakers and activists who are working to change the landscape here. But I also wanted to speak to a national audience. And so I think that what's going on here in Richmond could appeal to somebody far outside of our region for a couple of ways. I think number one is we've got a really long history here. We go all the way back to the, the colonial period, you know, to the very first encounters among the English and the Algonquin Indians, you know, here on the what the English would call the James River, just upriver from Jamestown in the early 1600s all the way up to today. That's a really long time to be able to see and track these changes over centuries that not every location, I think, in America, has. And something else that strikes me is, again, I think what we're seeing in Richmond is similar to what we've seen this summer with Monument Avenue attracting so much of the nation's attention that what can happen in Richmond seems to be relevant to what could happen for the rest of the country. You know, if Monument Avenue could pivot, if we could tell new stories on Monument Avenue, that that would be encouraging for the direction that this country is capable of going in. And so I found the same, I think, hopefully for the cemeteries too, that almost every little Locality throughout the South has a similar dynamic of African-American grave sites or indigenous grave sites that have not been well regarded by others or have faced uh, destruction and, and faced challenges. But if we could look to the example that we see here of what's working or what's not working and what challenges remain, I'm hoping that it will be instructive for, for folks outside the region too. And I guess the last connection I thought about as I was trying to plug this into an audience outside of Virginia would be, we think about how many families could trace their history through Richmond or through Virginia, and how many people look back to earlier ancestral sites in Virginia and want to reconnect with their ancestors. Just this morning, I was speaking with a woman in Texas who's very much engaged with her fourth great grandmother's gravesite here in Richmond, and she cares deeply about what that gravesite looks like and how we can access it and what story it can tell us today. So it's it's hopefully going to be relevant to those within Richmond and far beyond.
1: Awesome. Wow. Fourth Great Grandmother's grave site. Wow. That, that's actually really impressive. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, it's not an unusual story. I've talked with plenty of folks who, even folks with an African-American connection, family history, that are able to, to do phenomenal genealogical work and to trace those stories back. And so it's super exciting to be able to follow along with someone on their journey like that and, and reconnect them with their grave site.
1: Or even the oral histories of the families that are connected to these sites and what they and their families have gone through.
3: Because without the paper records, oftentimes oral histories are are essential. So uh, salute to the friends and and all the other groups that have been actively generating those oral histories.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation and I loved your book. (laughs) Thank you again to Dr. Ryan Smith for joining me for this very enlightening conversation about his recent book, Death and Rebirth in a Southern City. If you want to check out more about um, the Friends of East End or Dr. Ryan Smith, that will all be in the show notes. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed.
2: Yeah, right on. Thanks. It was great, and and I I feel like I'm more of a friend of a cemetery now, which which is key. You know, I...
1: <laughs> everyone should be
2: everybody should be I agree I, I think it's the right way and, and a, a huge thanks to you Sarah for, for putting together this episode and if you want to hear more of Sarah's work and see more of it she does amazing artwork and fun engagements on on Instagram LinkedIn Twitter Facebook you'll see her across doing all the beautiful artwork that you see for the, the show um, and obviously making new episodes so thank you Sarah for bringing this to us
1: yeah thank you for letting me share this with everyone
2: Right on. Cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, It's been fun. Sarah Schmider has produced today's episode along with myself, and we are good to see you next time. As always, this is This Afterlife. I'm Adam Gamwell.
1: And I'm Sarah Schmider.
2: Love it. Cool. Awesome. We'll see you next time.